Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 327. And today we're going to be talking about other movements. Uh, we've been spending a lot of time on civil rights, but I do want to talk about some of the other movements going on that kind of uh, uh, make the 60s a little bit, I don't want to say tumultuous, because that's implying that these are bad movements, but uh, we're, we're, we're still very much leading up to Nixon. We're still very much to Nixon. Uh, but I want to talk to you about some of the other movements, other than the civil rights movements that are going on. Um, concurrent with the civil rights movement, um, oftentimes leaning off the civil rights movement, and, and really uh, changing the way that um, Americans feel about a lot of these issues, and ultimately, in the short term, uh, leading to somebody like Richard Nixon becoming president, and that kind of conservative backlash that happens in 68, but also to the modern America. So we're talking about student movement, women movement, and homosexual movements today. So there we go. Uh, get Open up the PowerPoint, uh, you know, go on and uh, get going. So spreading out. Now, according to legend, according to lore, according to the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, the, the, the story that people like to tell themselves after the civil rights movement, uh, the idea is you have all these, you know, these white elite college students going down to Freedom Summer in the summer of 1964, and they come back to their home campuses, and they want to utilize those same techniques for their own inequalities, their own inequities, maybe deal with the African Americans, you know, back wherever they are in Massachusetts or Michigan or what have you. Uh, does that actually happen? That's really not <laughs> not quite. Uh, some are continually interested in the plight of African Americans. Uh, some become even larger with that. For instance, I had a professor back when I was an undergrad who was one of these Freedom Summer um, individuals and ended up staying in Mississippi, uh, became a college professor there. Um, but what is true is that a lot of these students, and not just those who participate in, this, in the Freedom Summer, or the, you know those who participate in the Civil Rights Movement, but people are becoming more interested in um, things that are closer to them, uh, some of the issues that are affecting them more closely at home. Now, why does this happen? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of different reasons, but a big hunk of it has to do with sheer number. Uh, by the time we get to 1964, the baby boomers, who baby boomers are considered people who've been born after World War II is over, so we're looking at 1946, 1946 to 1964, that's 18 years, and an 18-year-old's about ready to go to college. And so these baby boomers are now looking forward to going to college. You know, they're looking forward to maybe, you know, um, you know, becoming their own individuals. I mean, it's only natural to challenge uh, your parents and, and other preconceptions. It's only natural, you know, once you become a an adolescent um, and, and post-adolescence, really. You know, you become a young, a young adult which I'm assuming everybody here listening is a young adult or an adult, uh, it's only natural that you're going to start trying to figure out who you are, trying to figure out what's your place in the world, and trying to challenge the stuff you don't like. And a lot of that happens once they go to college. They find out fairly early that college in this time period is not the college they thought it was going to be. Uh, the colleges that happen, uh, that are going on, uh, colleges as a whole tend to be fairly conservative institutions. Now, when I say conservative, when I say conservative, you're probably automatically thinking politically conservative. And, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like economically conservative. Um, you know, colleges have things like endowments, uh, conservative in the sense of, you know, don't rock the boat too much. Don't be too radical. And that's very much the case during the sixties and the fifties and sixties, uh, colleges is becoming more uh, available for more people. 
Uh, thanks to the success of things like the GI Bill, which allowed a whole generation of uh, World War II soldiers to go to college. Now their kids are getting a chance to go to college. Before this time, college was something that was reserved just for the, the very wealthy, uh, almost like a finishing school for the very wealthy. And most schools existed <coughs> in a term which, it's a bit, it's, it's a Latin term. If you go over one slide, you're going to see the term in loco parentis. In loco parentis. It literally means in lieu of parents or in the stead of parents. Basically, these college institutions, these universities, uh, they acted as though they were the parent of the student. Basically, the idea was you are transferring, one, a parent is transferring one's parentship to the college. Once you send your little, you know, Jimmy or Bobby over there or little Susie over to college, you know, they are going to be acting as the parent. They're going to be acting as the parent. Basically, this is a concept. The schools don't really exist for the good of the student. It's for the good of the parents. Now, how does this manifest? This manifests in a number of ways. Uh, for instance, in this picture you see right there, you see a bunch of uh, older ladies. You see a bunch of older ladies. These are dorm mothers. These are dorm mothers. Uh, in this time period, before the 1960s, and actually, during a lot of the 1960s, not until the end of the 60s and 70s, where you actually start getting rid of dorm mothers, but yes, most dorms had somebody called a dorm mother, who is basically a older lady who lives in the dorm and acts as like a, a chaperone or as a protector for the students contained within, particularly for female students, particularly for female students. Uh, whenever my mom went to LSU, she had dorm mothers. Uh, in fact, whenever my sister went to LSU, there were dorm mothers there. My, my sister went to LSU in the 90s. Uh, but yes, there were dorm mothers, and basically they ensure that um, you know the virtue of the students... Uh, of the young ladies are not tested by, you know, young men coming at all hours and, uh, you know, taking them out. You have to sign in and sign out of the dorm if it's outside of certain hours. Uh, make sure that they're, uh, you know, keeping up with their hygiene. Uh, make sure their rooms are clean, things like that. Also, curfews. Curfews are also common in most colleges. The idea being, you know, you can't, you have to be back within the dorm by, you know, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, maybe a little bit later on a weekend. You know, you have bed check and dorm check, basically to make sure that these students are in there. And there's also something called moral codes. Uh, moral codes. Basically, students... Now, you might have heard of various codes of conduct that uh, various universities still have. Uh, honor code is fairly common. For instance, uh, I know BYU... Uh, Brigham Young University has a, a very strict honor code, uh, bordering on a moral code. Uh, but you know, an honor code says like, "Hey, I won't cheat," or "I, you know, I won't, I won't plagiarize anything." A moral code is more like, "I'm not gonna, you know, drink underaged," or "I'm not going to." I mean, a lot of it has to do with promiscuity. These moral codes, like, "I'm not gonna have sex outside of marriage," and if you're caught doing this sort of thing, you could be expelled from the school. You know, even if you're a straight A student, you're going to class every day, kicking butt in the classroom, you could be kicked out for uh, moral codes. And these are not just religious schools. A lot of state schools also have these moral codes. Also, you have things like dress codes. Yes, also have things like dress codes. Uh, for instance, at LSU, that's the one I'm talking about the most because both my parents went there in the 60s. Uh, when my parents first started LSU, all girls had to wear skirts or dresses in class. Uh, basically, that was a dress code, was if you were a girl, you had to wear a skirt or a dress every day. You could not wear pants. The exception was if you were in the marching band and you're going to band practice, if you're a young lady, you could wear pants. 
my mom played the clarinet and she 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 told me she's like, oh yeah, every day I pretended I was going to band practice just so I could wear pants because after a while dresses and skirts get kind of old. Uh, so this is something very common, but but mainly, I mean, outside of little things like that, schools that are, exist for the benefit of the parents. These schools existed for the benefit of the parents in ways that you may not be too crazy about when you hear about. Uh, for instance, parents could look at grades anytime they wanted. Parents could look at grades whenever they wanted. Uh, the idea being that you know the, the student is you know under the guise of the uh, is under the protection of the school and the school is existing for the good of the parent because they're on the same page. So you know a, a parent could uh, you know call up a professor and be like, hey, I want to find out about Johnny's grades. How's he doing in biology class? And the professor could tell the parent. Uh, just so you know, you cannot do that anymore. It is a it is a FERPA violation. Like, uh, as long as you're over 18, I can't tell your parents anything. Now, those of you who might be taking this course for high school credit, there's a little bit more of a chance that maybe your parent could look at that, but by and large, no. Uh, that said, though, um, if if a parent calls me and you're over 18 and they ask for their grade, I can't show it to them. Like, by law, if I were to show them your grade... I would be, uh, I could possibly get fired because I'd be violating all sorts of privacy. But that doesn't exist back in the 60s. Uh, likewise, uh, if a student was going to be expelled, uh, they were not given due process. Uh, they were not given due process. A uh, due process under the law is a, uh, this idea that basically if, you're, if, you, if you have a violation of the law, if you are facing legal punishment or recompense, you have due process. You get a trial, you get a chance to speak out for yourself, that sort of thing. Now, this does not apply to parents. Uh, parents do not have to give their children due process because they're parents and they claim authority over the children. And so because schools are acting in loco parentis, now these schools could kick students out with no due process. The idea is like you're kicked out, you have no say in the matter, you have no say to responding to it, um, you are just kicked out, and that is that. Now, a lot of these students don't particularly care for this. And if you go over one more slide, you're going to see the student movements. There are various student movements that come about kind of protesting some of this stuff. Kind of protesting some of this stuff. And also the fact that most of these colleges are fairly conservative politically. A lot of them are fairly conservative politically in addition to their institutional stuff. And so you have students protesting against this. But by and large, they're protesting against, uh, you know, the idea that these schools are existing primarily for the good of the parents, not for the good of the students. Now, probably the most famous of these groups, if you go over one slide, is Students for a Democratic Society. There's its, uh, one of its founders, Tom Hayden. Um, now, this is a group that gets a lot more credit slash blame than it might otherwise deserve. SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, it is a fairly well-known movement, um, organization. It gets blamed for a lot of stuff, uh, more stuff than it actually does. Um, it's founded around 1960 or maybe 1959, depending on who was talking. It's kind of a predecessor to the uh, larger um, student movements. Remember, because this is, you know, most baby boomers are still in high school by 1960. Uh, its earliest membership was what was known as Red Diaper Babies. Uh, red Diaper Babies is a, is a term that they use for children of leftists. Children of, maybe they're communists, maybe they're socialists. Maybe they don't care for the conservative nature of the United States government. You know, they're American, but maybe they're more um, politically inclined parents. And this kind of spreads to the children. The, these red diaper babies, or what they're called, basically they are the children of leftists, more, um, more 
Lowercase s socialists, some of them are uppercase s socialists, but uh, a bit more to the leftist side. And, and these red diaper babies, the, the earliest movement of, uh, this, of students of SDS, of Students for a Democratic Society, they want various leftist goals. Various leftist goals, um, you know, just promoting more leftist ideas, maybe some redistribution of wealth. In 1962, they issue what's known as the Port Huron Statement. Uh, the Port Huron Statement, which was written actually by Tom Hayden. There he is right there. Um, it basically is, it's a, it's a well-known statement, um... I believe I even give you a section of it. No, I don't. I do not give you a section of it to read. The reason why I don't give you a section of it to read, it's very broad. It's very broad. It, it just calls for basic leftist goals. It's very vague. It's more of a call to arms than actual protest. It's not like, hey, here's how we're going to do stuff. It's more about, hey, we should get riled up. Now, it starts at the University of Michigan. Like I said, it starts at the University of Michigan. That's, and it honestly, it might have stayed at the University of Michigan had it not been what happened at Berkeley in the fall of 1964. Please mark the date. You can go over one slide. Fall of 1964, you got these baby boomers coming in. You got this big influx of students. This is also post-Freedom Summer, so there are a few people involved who have been involved in Freedom Summer. Now, Berkeley is the uh, flagship campus of the University of California system. Uh, UC Berkeley, you might be familiar with it. The Golden Bears, they play football. I think Aaron Rodgers went there. Um, it, it, nowadays, it's considered one of the more liberal college campuses, particularly the more liberal uh, public university campuses. But at this time, it actually has a fairly long history of being quite um, conservative. Quite conservative, particularly in terms of its politics. Uh, the school had a history of not allowing overtly political speakers on campus, um, making some feel that this was unfair. Now, to be fair to Berkeley at this time, this went both sides. They were not allowing very conservative people, but they were not allowing very liberal people as well. Uh, a lot of these people involved in SDS, a lot of these people are leftist. They're wanting their various leftist organizations to bring in some leftist speakers, that sort of shtick. Uh, they tend to be a bit more vocal, but don't be don't get it twisted. There are some conservative groups that are also not allowed on Berkeley's campus during this time period. Now, because of this, they do this because of in loco parentis. Basically, Berkeley is arguing this time period that hey, you know, this is for the good of the students. We don't want them to you know to have these speakers on campus. Even if it's a student organization, we're acting as a parent. We think this might be a bad look, so we're not going to have this to happen. Now, some students don't like this. Some students don't like this. Um, they actually, uh, you have some uh, SDS people. You also have CORE, uh, the Congress of Racial Equality. There is some civil rights stuff going on here. Uh, they're um, rallying against this. Basically, SDS, CORE, other more leftist organizations. But the reason why it gets big is they actually pair with some conservative organizations, too, be like, hey, uh, let's have free speech. This becomes known as a free speech movement. The idea that maybe college campuses should let um, political speakers come on campus. You know, Even if they don't align with the values of the school, they should be allowed to come on campus because it's for the good of the students. And it's part of this larger charge, this larger movement against In Loco Parentis. Uh, in Loco Parentis, as I said, was a sermon in lieu and parents. And so basically it works. Uh, it works. Berkeley allows for more uh, political speakers to come on campus, more radical political speakers, both left and right. 
And so this really causes more people to get involved with it. Uh, has a bit more of a, uh, you know, it, it has a bit more of a gumption going. But what really causes students to flock to SDS and other organizations was, if you go over one more, the war in Vietnam. Uh, there was a general sense that uh, the United States was being too imperialist. The idea that the U.S. was getting too involved in this little country. You know, what did Vietnam ever do to us? They're far away. Uh, and also, not only that, there is a sense of unease about how closely some colleges are aligned with the military. Um, for instance, mo- a lot of colleges have ROTC programs, Reserve Officer Training Corps. And some people think that, you know, e- in fact, even some colleges required all male students to be members of ROTC. Uh, even if they were conscientious objectors, even if they didn't believe in warfare, they were still required to be members of the ROTC. Uh, this seemed to upset a lot of people. Also, uh, some universities have like chemical programs and uh, you know chemistry labs, science buildings that are making chemical weapons like Agent Orange for the war in Vietnam. They think it's very unfair. Uh, I should also mention because there was in loco parentis, uh, some schools. You know, if you are an academic fail, uh, if you are in, you know, if you're on probation, academic probation, if there's a fear of failure for you, like you know, if you had like a very low GPA and you might have been kicked out of the school. Ironically, not ironically, but um, the colleges wouldn't just share that information with your parents. Some colleges would share that information with the military. The idea being, hey, you know, this person's about to drop, uh, about to be kicked out. You can get them in the military immediately. Because the thing is, although there was a draft going on, and a lot of the protest was against the draft, uh, most college students were not in any real danger of being drafted. Uh, because the easiest way to get a deferment was to be a college student. So ironically, despite this perception of a radical, you know, radical students, you know, just protesting the war left and right, ironically, approval rates of the war are actually higher on college campuses than anywhere else in the country. And that's because this group, sorry, these student groups, uh, they are definitely a minority, but they're a vocal minority, but they're a minority nonetheless. Uh, most college students don't get involved with this, but still, the vocal people are the ones that you hear about. But regardless of that, the perception arose against a lot of quote-unquote good Americans, whatever you want to call them, the, the older generation, you know, your World War II generation, uh, the people who are later going to vote for Richard Nixon, uh, that the college students are ungrateful. You definitely have this sense that college students are ungrateful. You know, they've been given so much, and this is how they repay their parents. You know, they were given everything they could ever possibly want, and now these damn college kids, they're just ungrateful little snots. You know, they've been given so much stuff, they've been given everything they could possibly want, and now they're biting the hand that feeds them. Now, this, 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 the war itself actually splits SDS into various different groups, uh, including the more radical weathermen. The, the weathermen, they are the ones who are willing to commit um, more acts of violence, such as bombing ROTC buildings or other buildings on college campuses that are aligned uh, with the, mil- the military-industrial complex. If you have one more slide, you're going to see what happens eventually. Backlash. Uh, backlash happens against the students uh, who are viewed as treasonous and ungrateful. I mentioned that originally. Um one of the one of the an early recipient of this backlash, you know, one of the one of the ones who really promoted this is if you see the picture right there, that that is Ronald Reagan in 1966. Uh, Ronald Reagan in 1966. This is he's running for governor of California. This is his rise to political power. 
Uh, he dismisses the protesters as sex, drugs, and treason. And uh, he campaigns in 1966 to become governor of California with a campaign slogan, one of his many being, clean up the mess in Berkeley. Um, although Reagan was of the right of most Americans, and by the way, like he's more conservative than most Americans, uh, he was able to win a lot of easy elections, and it was not too far from American thinking, Amer- most Americans thinking. Like even though Reagan was viewed as like, oh my God, he's a right, he's a right wing nut job. Even in the sixties, he's viewed as very right wing. Uh, this is all key in the lead up to nineteen sixty eight, though, when we get Nixon elected, because this whole idea that. Our young people are, you know, they're just doing drugs, having sex, they're ungrateful, they're treasonous. Uh, if you look at some of these signs, H-bomb Hanoi, support our troops in Vietnam, this idea that, you know, this is, you know, undermining American uh, morale is what's killing the war in Vietnam, it's not the bravery of the soldiers, that sort of issue about it. Now, as big as that was, um, a much bigger movement going on and probably infected more people and maybe a little bit less organized, but still more people, is the women's movement, Lib- women's liberation. Uh, this is a problem that is not unique to America, okay? Uh, this is not unique to America. Uh, women have been marginalized in various societies forever. Um, women have really not been treated great by various societies I mean, what, since the Garden of Eden, Adam of Eve, or, you know, cavemen, it's, it's a very, yeah, this is not an American problem, uh, sexism and degradation of women. So why does it get traction now, though? Okay, that, that, I want you to think about that for a second. What is it that's going on that lets, you know, women who have been marginalized since the dawn of time, uh, why do they get traction now? Well, there's a lot of different things, but let's go back to 1963. In 1963, a woman named Betty Friedane, there she is right there, she publishes a book called The Feminine Mystique. Uh, The Feminine Mystique is a bestseller. Um, Basically, she goes to her college reunion. She goes to a college reunion, and she meets all of her her classmates. She went to an all-women's college, and, you know, she got her degree. She got her degree, but then after she got her degree, she got married. She got married and was told, based upon the expectations of the time, you need to go home and be a housewife. You need to go home and be a housewife. And she's like, I was miserable. You know, I, I learned all this stuff. I had, I had become such an individual. And now I'm stuck in suburbia. You know, I'm, there's nothing to do every day. I'm lonely. My kids are okay, but, like, they're not as fulfilling as I would have hoped. Uh, and she, when she goes to her college reunion, she starts talking to her, her fellow classmates, her fellow alum, and she realized they're pretty much all in the same boat. Now, to be fair to, you know, to her classmates and also other women, uh, these are all upper and middle class white women. Actually, more upper than middle class. You know, but, 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 but theoretically speaking, you know, upper class white women should be at the top of everything. They, they should feel, you know, they're at the top of society. They have every creature comfort they could ever want. Yet, why do they feel still feel so unfulfilled? You know, in her book, she calls this the problem with no name. She calls it the problem with no name. Basically, she's like, if you if you start talking to women who have, you know, they've they theoretically have it all. You know, they're they they're wealthy. They have you know the nice house. They've got the, the you know the two point five children and the picket fence and the dog, and they're all miserable. They're all miserable. Why are they all so unfulfilled? And she argues that. Uh, it's because society is biased against women. She says, basically, you know, society has only given women this one little role, and pretty much it forcibly shuts them out of everything else. Uh, some restaurants barred women from eating. Uh, they're, they're, that was a thing. Basically, it was like, no, this is a man's restaurant. 
Uh, it's for businessmen who are having lunch or whatever, and if a woman was there, it would make them feel uncomfortable. Uh, women were not allowed to have credit cards in their own name, or even bank accounts, uh, until like the 70s. Until the 1970s, women were not allowed to have like bank accounts or have a credit card in their own name. It had to be in the name of her husband or another male relative. And so this is this larger issue against women. And in 1966, she helps form a group called NOW, the National Organization of Women. You go over one side, you'll see them. Uh, they, they even choose the name because it's like, oh, my catchy slogans, you know, what do we want? Independence, when do we want it? Now, that sort of thing. And it encourages women to leave the house and take to the streets for equal pay, rights, and respect. The idea that, you know, women should be equal to men, we should really push this. We should push this idea that women are, are the equal of men and they are worth... Um, you know, having their own stuff. You know, they're worth equal pay, equal respect. And she was very much influenced by the civil rights movement and actually used a lot of their tactics. Uh, used a lot of their tactics. And I, it's not just her. It's now in general. If you go over one side, you'll see them marching. They start doing marches and uh, sit-ins and other protests. And I should mention, the civil rights movement had its own problems with sexism, as did the student movement. Um, civil rights movement had a lot of problems with sexism, particularly with uh, African-American women were allowed to be like in the membership, but not part of the leadership of all these organizations. Uh, the student movement also had a really big issue with like, you know, telling women you can only be secretaries and things like that. Uh, a great article I, I have to give you as an um, example of that. It's called Goodbye to All That. Goodbye to All That. I, I provided that to you. It's about a ma magazine called Rat. It was like very much a countercultural new left newspaper in New York City. But basically, uh, a group of women who worked for Rat were like, this is like sexist. This is really, really, really sexist. The stuff you're doing, you're making us do, is really sexist. You know, um, you're saying all this thing about us. You know, you're saying all these things about how you're marginalizing what we do, marginalizing what we think. We're expected, you know, even though you claim to be such, um, I hate to use the term woke. But that's modern-day language. But, you know, you're claiming to be all these forward-thinking, open-minded individuals, and yet you're expecting, like, crazy sexist stuff of us. Um, and, and basically, I want you to read that article because it's, it's a really good takedown of a lot of the things going on. And she's like, yeah, goodbye to all that. Uh, basically, the writer's like, goodbye to all that. That is just, you know, nope, we're done. Uh, we're, we're done with this. You know, the idea that women were not allowed into leadership or were subject to sexist demands – that is something that really keeps creeping up. And this is, by the way, also a problem in the counterculture. Um, I'm not really going to go into hippies too, too much, but just know the idea of the counterculture, hippies, free love, free sex, all that good stuff, uh, free drugs, whatever. Um, this idea of, quote, unquote, sexual freedom was also very degrading for women. Uh, for instance, you know, what if you don't want to have sex with somebody? What if you're like, oh, oh free love, but uh, yeah, I don't want to have sex with that person because he's nasty or whatever. Well, then you're called a square. Or what if you're like, hey, I don't want to, you know, have a threesome or whatever. Well, guess what? You're called a square. Your 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 ish your uh, your legitimacy is called into question. Yeah, hippies have a really bad problem with sexism too. And so these women movements start growing. They start growing as well. They start getting a lot bigger. Now, to be fair, to be fair, uh, even the women's movement had accusations of classism and racism. Uh, basically, anything but rich white women were not allowed to be leaders. Uh, that is that is an accusation against the women's liberation movement early on. It's pretty much only rich white women and straight women at that. Um, 
a lot of a lot of uh, lesbians were uh, trying to get involved with this, and then they were basically told, "No, no, no, you're not you're not a good look for our movement." Little elements of respectability. Same thing with black women or poor women. And also, there was a sense of resentment from women who felt that, um, you know, they're like, "Hey, I'm a mother. You know, I, I still want you know women's equality, but I'm happy to be a stay at home mom." Um, basically, they insinuated that. Um, they felt that now was saying that uh, it means less than um, a career. Uh, being a mother means less than a career, and they're like, "This is this is insulting to us. This is insulting to us." Uh, there's also some anti-feminist backlash. There's also some anti-feminist backlash, really personified. If you go over one more, uh, by a woman by the name of Phyllis Shafley. Uh, Phyllis Shafley is probably the more specific example of this anti-feminist backlash. Um, she argued that, you know, women should not be like men. She argued that if we give equal rights to everybody, uh, men are going to start divorcing women left and right. Women are going to get drafted into the military. Homosexuals are going to be allowed to marry, that sort of shtick. Uh, she says that women should not be working outside the home. Even though she works outside of the home, she was a lawyer and she was married, but I guess it was one of those do as I say, not as I do type of insinuation. There's also this kind of general sense that, um, you get the accusation of bra burners, uh, the idea that oh these are just ugly broads who are trying to you know get get some up and come up into society. Uh, that's a more general opposition to it. Basically, it's not really that women are ungrateful, but um, yeah, basically it's like women are losing their place, losing their role. When somebody think of the children, and by the way, uh, not just Phyllis Shafley, but you can see in her picture there are other women who claim that they are against the Equal Rights Amendment, which comes out later, and women's liberation. Now, I should also mention, it does seem that sex changes in this time period, too. Now, I bet you're wondering, whoa, Tully, what do you mean, sex changed? Okay, hold on. Um, the actual act, like the physical, you know, mechanics, shall we say, of sex did not change. That's That's been around since the dawn of time. Neither did interest in sex. Also been around since the dawn of time. But some of the other things changed about sex. This is part of the time of what's known as the sexual liberation uh, Sexual revolution. For instance, you go one more slide, you will see the pill. Uh, the birth control pill is a raised, was released in the early 1960s. Uh, the birth control pill, um, it does exactly as it says. It, it, it prevents you from getting pregnant. Um, most of the time. Most of the time. Ah, there are my stapler. Um, I, I should also say, as long as people have been having babies, people have been trying to figure out ways not to have babies. So the idea that you could just take a pill and for it to prevent pregnancy, um, that was quite popular. It also made uh, premarital sex much more common. Although, to be fair, stats on uh, sex are kind of hard to come by because generally people didn't talk about it too, too much uh, before the 1960s. But still, uh, the insinuation that, hey, we can have premarital sex, we won't have children, um, condoms were nowhere near as common as they are nowadays. So, um, you know, like I said, stats about sex are kind of hard to come by, but still, the birth control pill, there's a perception of, hey, there's consequence-free sex. You can, you can have sex, there's no fear of getting pregnant. Uh, not just that, um, uh, there's a new rise in like things like Playboy. Playboy and other pornographic magazines, they're more widespread, and for the first time, they're showing faces. Um, most early porn didn't show faces, and, and this, this theoretically made pornography, you know, the naked body, more um, more acceptable. Likewise, Hugh Hefner tried to embody, like, no, I'm not some sort of smut peddler. You know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm a, I'm a cosmopolitan man about town. You know, I listen to jazz. 
I've got my bunnies. You know, it's I hate to say it's wholesome because he's still like, you know, here's naked ladies. But it's this idea that, no, 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 I'm not a smut peddler. I'm a cosmopolitan man about town. You know, I'm Hugh Hefner. I'm somebody you want to be like. And likewise, abortion laws are being reduced around the country. Uh, laws against abortion are being, you know, kind of, they're kind of going down against the entire country. Uh, to be fair, this is never a very big number, and it wasn't really that big of a, a talking point for anybody. It's not until, like, Roe v. Wade, which comes about in the 70s, and there's already a backlash against the sexual revolution that really makes abortion a much bigger um, talking point, shall we say. Uh, I'm not saying abortion's not a major talking point. It is. I know politics. But before this time, people didn't really talk too much about it or make that much of a, a big deal about it. And the number of people getting abortions was never very high. But more than anything, uh, people are seemingly talking more about sex more. People are talking more about sex more. Now, is there a backlash? Oh, gosh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, decent, quote-unquote, folks, uh, people who later vote for Nixon, blame things like now and the women's movement for all this stuff. Um, they basically blame the women's movement for everything. Not just, you know, not just like, oh, there's more women working and things like that. It's like, oh, women's movement, you're the reason why there's more promiscuity. You're the reason why pornography is more prevalent. Ironically, now is against those things. Uh, now is against pornography, and they're also against promiscuity. But now they're being blamed for it. And once again, it appeared that the country seemed to be losing its way. Now, that's the second of the big movements. The final big movement I'm going to be talking about is homosexual. Homosexuals, uh, Stonewall is the big one. Now, prior to the late 1960s, there really weren't a lot of options for homosexuals in the United States, or anywhere, really, but particularly in the United States. Um, being closeted was the rule. The idea of being an out homosexual was not really a thing. It was seen as social suicide. You'd easily lose your job. You'd probably lose your family, any other support system. People wouldn't, like, rent you a house or, you know, rent you an apartment or be able to buy a house. This is really seen early on in something like the Lavender Scare. In something like the Lavender Scare. Uh, the Lavender Scare was in the 1950s. I think I alluded to it, where basically gay State Department employees were forced to leave because it was feared their sexuality would be used by communists for blackmail purposes. Now, there are some gay organizations where they're very secretive. Very, very, very secretive. Now, I'm not to really get into it. This is a history class, not a gender studies class or a sexual history class. But in general, sexuality is a spectrum. Uh, there's a globs of quote-unquote deviant behavior, which nowadays we wouldn't consider much of anything, that doesn't comply to the standards of the 60s. For instance, cross-dressing. Cross-dressing or transgender people, drag queens, whatever. Uh, these are individuals that they are viewed as outside of the norm of the 1960s. Um, and as such, they're not allowed to blend in. Um, you know, you know a, a gay man who just wears regular clothes and does his own thing and, you know, maybe does stuff with other dudes behind closed doors in secret, uh, that, that's a pass. That, that's a pass. That's something you can hide. That's something you can be closeted about. But if you're, like, transgendered or a cross-dresser, you don't really have that privilege. Anyway, there are laws all over the place that forbid homosexuals from hanging out together and being open about it. Um, you know, the homosexuals against the law in most places, uh, hanging out with other homosexuals is also against the law. You can't be open about it. And it's also illegal for businesses to willingly do businesses, sorry, it's illegal for businesses to legally do business willingly with homosexuals. 
particularly with homosexual groups. Now, if it's an individual, you'd be like, yeah, I don't know. But still, I mean, there could be a fine against you if you do something like rent a house to a gay person, that sort of thing, or rent an apartment to a gay person. Now, a primo example of that, the primo example of that is gay bars. Okay? Uh, a gay bar is something that existed in this time period. But gay bars still exist. They're often seen not just as a bar, but as a kind of a home away from home, or not even a home, but more than a home, or just a, I don't know, a safe place for homosexuals. Thing is, though, if a bar was found to serve gay folks knowingly and perfectly cater to them, like let alone cater to them, if they're known to serve gay people, they can lose their liquor license. If you lose your liquor license, that is a major issue um, for a bar. Like, you do understand that. Like, if you're a bar that can't serve liquor, uh, you're screwed. Now, they do have gay bars because, you know, supply and demand. People are willing to go for them. And if, if you can think of a group that is willing to, you know, maybe play skirt loose with the law, uh, that'd be the mafia. Most gay bars are run by the mafia because they're okay with playing loose with the law. It's an open secret. It's an open secret that there are gay bars out there. They're run by the mob. And also they pay off the cops. They pay off the cops. And this is no different than Stonewall. Stonewall is a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a gay bar in New York City. It's not even technically a bar. It, cause it even really shouldn't even technically considered a building. Cause it lacked things like running water and like basic sanitation standards. It's run by the Genovese Cry family, which is a mafia family. And it's a cash-only club whose quote-unquote members have to sign their name. Now, the bouncers only let people who look quote-unquote acceptable, and it was primarily a male-only clientele, although they do let some lesbians there. Uh, It's also supposed to be free from prostitutions and drugs, but it's the mafia. Drugs and prostitution, it kind of comes about. And for most gay folks, though, they see it as just, it's a nice place where they can be out in the open. Now, because it's run by the mafia, the mafia has to pay off the cops once in a while, uh, it's fairly common for the cops to raid the joint. It's fairly common for cops to come in and raid it. And the club actually has a system. Basically, once a week, the cops would come, quote-unquote, raid the place. The customers would stop doing gay stuff for a little while, like, I don't know, they just sit and not dance with each other or kiss. And then the mafia would give the envelopes an envelope full of cash. Okay, so that in of itself, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's not too much of anything that's expected. You know, the cops are on the take. Um, you know, the clients, they, they get to have their space. The mafia makes some money. But we're dealing with the mafia here. And it shouldn't surprise you if the mafia discovers better ways to make money, specifically blackmail. Uh, you see, there are some prominent people who start coming to these nightclubs, uh, particularly Stonewall. Uh, wealthy ones, too. And the mafia learns pretty quick they can make a lot more money blackmailing, like, wealthy gay people than they could, you know, liquor sales. They realize, wow, there's way more money here. Now, this reduced the amount of money the cops were getting. Uh, basically, the cops felt like, oh, hey, you're, you're holding us out on money because, you know, the, the, uh, the mafia is like keeping more money from the uh, from the blackmail money, and the NYU NYPD is starting to get kind of annoyed with it. So they really start to they decide one day to actually raid the club without a tip off. Uh, generally, the club has been tipped off before, so they have the cash ready to go. the the uh, The patrons will stop doing gay things for a little while. So 1 a.m. on June 28, 1969. I'm well aware this is after Nixon is elected, but it's kind of within that old whole thing going on because we're going to end with 1968. 
The bar is rated in a surprise raid. Okay? Uh, the bar was rated in a surprise raid, and the patrons did not know this was coming. You know, they, they've been told before, hey, you know, there's going to be a raid tonight. Be prepared. Here's what you need to do. And so basically, they all stood outside, outside of the club, and uh, just kind of waited to, until, you know, all right, well, this is a raid. It's unexpected, but whatever. And then the cops say, give us your invitation. Give it, sorry, give us your identification. Give us your identification. But something happened. Something happened which was unusual. If you go over one side, you'll see some of this protest. Uh, a crowd gathers and starts booing the cops. They start booing the cops, being like, hey... They're just drinking. They're just chilling. You're trying to embarrass these people. You know, you're trying to humiliate them. You're trying to make them be seen. This is stupid. And then a drag queen, basically somebody who, you know, dressed in transgender clothing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, she, he, they are clubbed by a cop. They're clubbed by a cop. This causes riots to break out. Uh, a general talk is that it's the drag queens who are more willing to be more vocal in their protests because they have... They have a lot less to lose than the more closeted gays. The more closeted gay people are like, they're the ones who are more tight-lipped about it. But it's actually a lot of the more transgendered folk who are really upfront with this. They're really upfront with this. And by the time the riots end a couple nights later, it's clear that gay folks are going to use the lessons to form the civil rights movement. Uh, one is called the Gay Liberation Front. The, the Gay Liberation Front, you will see their statement on, the, on, uh, on Moodle. Basically, it says their platform statement. Uh, what do they want? You, you see, it's just an actual. What you know? What are they looking for? Um, a lot of there has to do with like legal protections, also psychological, um, because for instance, uh, homosexuality is ruled as a mental illness according to the American Psychological Association. But it's mainly um, about acceptance, mainly about acceptance. And ironically, the Gay Liberation Fund is taking money from the Black Panther Party, who themselves are quite homophobic. So go figure. Uh, the backlash is strong and swift. It, it looks now that sexual deviants are taking over the country. Uh, the idea that sex is now on public display. And that really comes together in 1968. It's kind of the embodiment of this. And yes, I know this is before Stonewall, but just stick with me here. Now, I should mention, I'm skipping a lot of other movements. Chicano riots, Native American riots. There's a lot of other different moves, movements going on. But 1968 is an election year, and LBJ has let it be known he's not running. He lets it be known he is not running. And uh, the reason that LBJ is not running is because he's like, hey, um, uh, this war in Vietnam is very unpopular. It's not letting me do my, uh, it's not letting me do my, what's the word I'm looking for, the, my great society programs. He knows if he were to run again, he'd lose the election. He wants to like, look, I'm not going to run again. I can spend all my energy getting in the war in Vietnam and doing great society stuff. Kind of tarnishes his, um, tarnishes his reputation. But the student movements and others, all these different movements, which tend to lean left, they feel like they have the chance to get a Democrat sympathetic to their cause. Uh, LBJ is more of a middle of the road, maybe slightly bending left, but more, more moderate to conservative Democrat. And so they're trying to find somebody who's sympathetic to their cause. Maybe he's going to do stuff about it. And the early, the early one they want is Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy, uh, he had been the Attorney General. He is the brother of John Kennedy. He was very popular. He seems to be an early choice. He seems to be the, the broad approach choice. He's not just getting the leftists, but he's also getting a lot of African Americans. Because remember, he's the one who's more interested in civil rights than John Kennedy was. Uh, he's winning. He's winning. Um, Primaries left and right. Looks like he's going to get it. Problem is, he is assassinated. 
He is also assassinated in 1968, 1968, the bad year. He's assassinated a couple months after Martin Luther King. He's assassinated a couple months after Martin Luther King. Uh, this is kind of seen as a disillusioning element, and so they're like, all right, we got to find somebody else. we got to find somebody else. And so pretty much they, they kind of go around Eugene McCarthy. Uh, Eugene McCarthy, who is an anti-war Democrat, he's an anti-war Democrat. He's a very leftist person. He's very leftist. I should mention the war in Vietnam is becoming very unpopular, uh, but a quote unquote, a lot of traditional Americans feel that we should keep fighting the war. Uh, McCarthy is interesting because he is straight up against the war. He is straight up against the war. He wants things that, um, you know, you can see his platform, you know, de-escalation, negotiation, these sort of things. He's also known for getting the youth vote. Uh, there's this idea that his party tries to promote, his campaign tries to promote, if you go over one slide, this idea of neat and clean for Gene. The idea that, you know, these, these, uh, these young people with their long hair and beards and stuff, they might be seen as a deviant for, quote-unquote, good Americans. So instead, they're going to go neat and clean, basically showing that we're good Americans. Same idea of this respectability stuff of the early civil rights movement. And McCarthy also has uh, fairly leftist policies. He has fairly leftist policies, but what happens is he does not get a majority of the votes. Remember, he doesn't have the delegates. Um, Robert Kennedy might have gotten the delegates, but he died. He died. And so what happens is a brokered convention time, all right, which happens in the summer. In the summer, you're going to have a brokered convention for the Democratic Party because no one candidate won enough votes. It's time to figure it out at the convention. And it comes on pretty early that McCarthy is not going to win. Uh, it is not going to win. Uh, Robert Kennedy's delegates go for George McGovern, not McCarthy. This is seen as a big loss. It kind of takes the wind out of McCarthy's sails because even though he has a plurality of the votes, he doesn't have the majority. And a lot of people think that he cannot win a general election. However, um, the guy who does end up getting it is Hubert Humphrey, Hubert Horatio Humphrey. Uh, he is Johnson's vice president. He is Johnson's vice president. He's a total establishment pick. He's pretty much like, hey, I'm the regular Democrat guy. You can see he's like, oh, I'm promoting unity. He's also pro-war. He's pro the war in Vietnam, which really alienates a lot of these different groups. Now, there are a lot of other underlying issues, but what happens in Chicago in 1968, we're going to end with this, is a bunch of riots. There's a bunch of riots at the Democratic Convention with a lot of these student organizations and other young people groups uh, protesting, rioting, um, you know, outside the convention hall, they're yelling, they're attacking cops, things like that. And it really kind of seems to give credence to this idea that the youth of America are ungrateful. The youth of America have been given everything. They're falling apart. You know, what has society done to us? We've lost everything. We've got deviant homosexuals, you know, shoving their sexuality in people's faces. Women are leaving the house, and, you know, we got pornography everywhere. And, oh, my gosh, well, you know, the college kids are growing beards, and, you know, they're protesting the war. They're not being good Americans. They're ungrateful. Society's gone crazy. And this really plays right into the hands of a guy who's promising law and order and return to America for who he calls the silent majority. His name is Richard Milhouse Nixon, and we're going to talk about him next time. So for History 327, Dr. Tully, wishing you a good one.